going to read God's Word um, this morning and reading a a familiar passage for this Christmas season from the second chapter of Matthew, um, verses 1 to 12, the story of the visit of the Magi. Let us hear the Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they heard the king They went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Amen. And thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that It would mean for us all that you intended it to mean. That at this beginning of this new year, your word would orientate us. Your word would bring us back to that place of worship where we find you. Amen. You know, Christmas carols are great, um, but they're sometimes a little bit creative with the Bible story. Uh, and as, as you read it, you're, you're left thinking, oh, that's not quite what I, uh, I thought we were singing. I, I'm always struck with carols like Silent Night. Um, has anyone ever been on a maternity ward? Quiet and stillness is not exactly um, what you find there. And, and Mary didn't have gas and air, never mind an epidural. Um, quite the reverse. But I suppose... Perhaps the, the, the most difficult thing to square is that we always, when we think of the Magi, we sing that song, don't we? We three kings of Orientar, and we miss the fact that um, they were not kings, and 
there were not three of them. We actually don't know how many kings there were. All we know is there were three gifts. In, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there were 12 kings or, or 12 um, magi, 12 wise men. Who knows? But then Bible stories should always disconcert us because we should always be reading them with that ear to saying, what is God's word saying to me that I didn't think instinctively was the case? What does it begin to shake about my assumptions? Not so much about, about carols or, or, or nativity plays, but what does it, it, it begin to shake about my assumptions about God himself, about life itself? So this story we come to this morning asking that question. Matthew begins just by saying that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He doesn't tell the stories that Luke has told about the Annunciation and the travel from Nazareth or any of that. He just focuses on Jesus born in Bethlehem. And then he introduces to us these mysterious magi. Magi, perhaps best just translated as, as, as wise men. They appear to have been people who were quite common around the courts of, of, of Eastern kings and powers as sort of mysterious people who collected the war and the, the wisdom of the ages. They were stargazers. They were astrologers. They were probably pagans, but they were wise. They are supposed to be seen in the Bible's sense of it as exotic figures, maybe slightly frightening figures. We get our word magician from the word magi. You get that idea of people who are almost aloof, people who are in connection with, with a spiritual reality, but, but maybe uh, not in the way that God's people were. And they saw his star rising, we are told, uh, Exactly what that means, the Bible doesn't spell out for us. People have speculated down through the ages that maybe they saw a comet or, or maybe it was an alignment of, of different planets, the planet that represented the Jewish people and the planet that represented the, the king and, uh, and maybe they saw something in that or, or perhaps the, when it refers to, to, to a star, it, it really means an angel. Um, sometimes angels are referred to as stars or, or perhaps it was something completely supernatural. We don't know. What we know is they had this sense that there was a king born in Judea. Now, it's interesting because that taps in with a rumor that was there in the ancient world, a very, very old rumor. It's a rumor that goes right back into the Bible's earliest chapters, right back into the book of Numbers, as God's people were wandering around with Moses in the wilderness, and they encounter, they encounter a, a sort of crazy mad prophet called Balaam. And Balaam issues a prophecy that we find in the book of Numbers that says, behold, a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter, the sign of a king, will come out of Israel. And this ancient prophecy is then echoed in, in, in the other prophecies of the later part of the Bible that begin to talk about a Messiah that will be born in the house of David and will bring hope, not just to the Jewish people, but to all the nations. But the interesting thing about that rumor from the Bible is that by the time of the first century, it had traveled all over the world. Perhaps as the Jewish people spoke about their hope as they were in exile in places like Babylon or, or Persia or, or in other places, perhaps as they were spun out into the Roman world as well, they began to speak a little bit of that hope, but it was picked up elsewhere. So much so that later on in the first century, the Roman writer Suetonius, a pagan, 
will talk about an old and persistent belief that a king would come out of Judah. And in fact, in, 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 in about AD 67 or so, um, when Nero died, I may have got the date a bit wrong there, but when Nero died, there was a Roman general who at that time was attacking Jerusalem, putting down a rebellion there, a guy called Vespasian. And, and a lot of the Romans looked and said, ah, he'll be the next guy because he's in Judea. A king will come out of Judah. And sure enough, he became emperor and he ruled over the whole world. And some of the folks said at the time, that's the fulfillment of the prophecy. That's why we celebrate every year the birthday of the emperor Vespasian. No, we don't, do we? No, we don't. Because God had something far more remarkable. But the Magi, perhaps in Persia or Parthia or Babylon, wherever they came from, like Suetonius, had heard this rumor. And as they saw whatever they saw in the sky, they put two and two together and began to think of a king born in Judea. So they traveled all that way to Judea itself. And where did they go? They went to the palace, the place of the king to Herod. It's interesting they traveled all that way and they, they didn't quite get to the right place. I, I suppose they had a star. We, we, we today have a sat-nav. And if you've ever traveled anywhere by sat-nav, not having checked where you're going before, you know that sometimes it can get you almost there. But I remember one time we were going somewhere with a sat-nav and finding myself up a dirt track on a one-way road. We were only a little bit of where we were supposed to be, but it was never quite right. And as the Magi followed their sat-nav, as it were, their, their, their satellite sign, they got almost there because they got to Jerusalem, but they were six miles short of Bethlehem, so near and yet so far. Traveled 900 miles probably over months, and yet they were just short. But they arrived at the court of Herod. At least they'd found a king, just was the wrong king. Well, Herod was a king, but he was only sort of a king. Because Herod was actually a usurper. The Jewish people knew very well that Herod was not of the line of David. In fact, not only was he not of the line of David, but the kings that had come before Herod, that had be, managed to shake off the, the Greek rule before that and become the kings of Judea with the Hasmoneans. And Herod wasn't even from that royal house. He had no claim to the throne of Judea. He'd been put there by the Romans and he reigned from about 37 BC to about 4 BC. Hence why we now think that Jesus wasn't actually born in the year zero, but slightly before it. But we know a lot about Herod from the Roman record. Herod was paranoid. He was violent. He was unpredictable. He'd got that throne, but like many dictators who have got power, he always felt he was under threat. In fact, Herod was so paranoid that he'd killed his wife, Mariamne, and executed two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, because he thought they were plotting against him. So you get that idea of this insecure tyrant, this, this megalomaniac who had built all sorts of, 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 of fortresses and defense lines to try to keep himself on the throne. And so when these wise men came and started speaking of a king born in Judea, Herod was absolutely paranoid. 
Any idea that these ancient prophecies were fulfilled was incredibly dangerous. Even if Herod didn't believe it, if other people started to believe it, then he was in a precarious position. So it was a threat. It's very interesting this, because one of the things it tells us right at the beginning of the gospel is that this news of Jesus is a threat to the political status quo. Desmond Tutu, remarkable man who we marked his passing just the other week, said, I don't know what Bible people are reading when they say religion and politics don't mix. The gospel is incredibly, remarkably political. Mary grasped this when she sang her Magnificat in Luke's gospel, where she talks about how the mighty are brought down and the, the poor are lifted up. This remarkable idea that all allegiance, all power belongs to Jesus Christ that turns everything upside down. And incidentally, that means in our day, whatever your politics are, whether they're left or right or, or pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit or for independence or against independence, one of the things that should unite us as Christians is that we believe that the hope of the world is not in any political agenda, but it is in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't tell us which of those agendas helps or doesn't help. Well, that is something we have to work out for ourselves. But our allegiance, first and foremost, is not to party or to politics, but it's to Christ, for he is the hope of the world. And he disturbs the political. But it's not just the political that's disturbed here. We're told in this gospel passage that all of Jerusalem was disturbed. And here, Matthew has in mind not just the political powers in Jerusalem, but the religious powers. You see, in the middle of all of this were a group called the Sadducees. And they sort of ran the show in Jerusalem. And their big thing was that they had managed to keep the temple in Jerusalem going. Despite the Romans and the Greeks and everything else that had come, they were hanging on to the temple. They could just keep the temple going and its prayers going and its sacrifices going and keep the temple as the holy place. And it was a good thing to do, don't get me wrong. Somehow in the midst of a broken and confused world, if they could just keep that one thing going, it gave them hope. The problem was that they'd missed the point of the temple. Because what was the temple about? The temple was always about that sense that God's presence was among his people. That God would be there at the heart of them. God would be with them. Here was Christ coming. God with us. Just six miles down the road in Bethlehem. And they couldn't see it. All they could see was a threat. A threat to their religious order. A threat to their way of doing things. A threat to their traditions. And a threat to their life. And so they colluded in preventing and conspiring against what God was doing in Jerusalem. I, uh, I think this is a real challenge for us as those who in dark days are custodians of the Christian tradition. Because there is a, a grave danger that because we feel under threat that we put all our energy and our focus into just keeping the show on the road. If we can just protect our church buildings, if we can just protect our church order, if we can just keep the Church of Scotland alive, if we can just keep the, the whatever it is that we're committed to going, and those aren't bad things to do. 
But the grave danger of it is that it prevents us seeing what it's all about, which is Christ coming, that people might encounter him and know him. The beginning of this COVID pandemic, one of the things that people noted was that there were people who had not come to church, who had not connected with it, who were beginning to connect with the church again and, and to ask questions again. But the danger for us is that we begin to see that as a threat. Maybe they'll not want to do things the way that we want to do things. Maybe if people come in, it'll upset stuff. Maybe if we reach out, we'll, we'll not keep what we've got alive. I've even heard it a bit on, from our, us as a congregation as we've looked at the future, as people want to grasp, and it's understandable. But the huge danger is that we become, we become like those folk in Jerusalem who didn't want things disturbed because they felt they might lose them. So how do we respond to what God is doing in Jesus? Well, the role model here isn't the king, and it isn't the religious authorities. It's the Magi, isn't it? We don't know anything about them. They were almost certainly not people that had been brought up as Jews. They didn't really know the whole scope of the Bible. They hadn't worked out that Bethlehem was connected with prophecy. They, they, they didn't know the things that Jewish people knew. Their knowledge was imperfect. They were groping in the dark. They were lost. Yet they were seeking. They were asking questions. Sometimes in the wrong places, but they were determined to find out what God was doing. I wonder, at the beginning of this year, do you have that sense of curiosity? Of scanning the scriptures. Of coming in prayer and asking, Lord, what are you doing in Jesus now? in Scotland at the moment? What are you doing in Motherwell? What are you doing? Where are you? How do I find you? Can I, can I encourage you just uh, as, as folk involved in the church to remember the promises you made to, to read the Bible regularly and pray? And if there's one thing you're trying to do at the beginning of this year, one New Year's resolution, it would be come back and do it again. Read the scriptures and pray. I uh, if you're looking for something very practical, I, I found a, an app. It's called Lectio 365. I'll put a, a bit on the sheet to go out. But Lectio 365 is if you've got a, a smartphone, you can put on either an Android or Apple if you have to. Um, and it'll give you a reading for the day and some prayers to encourage you just to spend some time with God. Or, or go into the Glow Center and pick up the Scripture Union Daily Bible Reading Notes. I saw them there the other day. Just at the beginning of the year, reconnect with the Scripture. Reconnect with that, that sense. And so they seek, and as they seek, they find. And they come to the house. Notice it's a house, it's not a manger. Coming later. They're a bit late at the show, but that's all right. The shepherds have already been and gone, maybe months before, maybe a year before. Maybe two years before. Colin's got the link there for you to have a look at. Um, but here they come. And we're told two things. First of all, we're told that they just rejoice. They rejoice. And they worship. And then they give their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, 
many a sermon has been preached, and I've probably preached a few myself on what the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh symbolize. I'm actually not so sure that is important. They, they, they are costly gifts. They're the gifts that you would give to a king, the, the gifts that would be used in a, for expensive perfumes, are the gifts that would be used in a, in a temple. And here they are given. And I don't know whether the wise men were rich. Was this the sort of thing they could buy on their expense account and not think too much about? Or was this the sort of treasure that cost them everything that they owned? We don't know. But as they came into that place and they saw that baby, there is a sense that what they were saying is, he's worth it. The journey is worth it. The questions that we came with is worth it. The danger that we come through is worth it. Skirting around that tyrant Herod is worth it. And we will give him what he is worth because it is worth it. We will sacrifice what we have to give. You know, we've, in our culture, associated gift giving at Christmas with Santa, haven't we? I was being reminded though just in the last few days Charlie, Charlie and Tanya were sharing with me about little bits about um, traditions in Spain and different parts of the world and in many parts of the world they, they will associate the gift giving not with St. Nicholas so much as with the wise men the Christmas gifts and that is that is real because somehow we're coming to this place of seeing Jesus there. Finding God made flesh. And we're saying this is the place of worship. And worship involves sacrifice. It involves gift giving. I was reading a story of Christmas gift giving that um, brought tears to my eyes. It's, it's written by a, a short story writer, O. Henry. And in it, there is a girl, Della, walking home. And as she walks home, she prays a prayer. Please, Lord, let him still think I'm pretty. And she does that because she has just had her beautiful knee-length cascading hair cut short that she could sell it to a wig maker, that she could buy her husband, Jim, a Christmas present. And she's bought him a gold chain. A gold chain that he could not possibly have afforded. She wants to give it to him to put his most precious possession on. The only thing he owns really, which is a gold watch that his father's father gave to him. They are a newly wedded couple and they are very poor. And as they live in the hovel of their apartment, their flat, they have no money for Christmas gifts. And so she has sold her hair that she might buy her husband something that he will value. And as Jim comes home that Christmas Eve, he will come home and he will receive this gold chain that she has sold her hair to buy. But here is the twist in the story. 
because Jim has sold the watch to buy a Christmas present for Della. And what he has bought her is a pair of tortoiseshell combs that she'd been admiring, but she might put them in her beautiful hair. Something they could not afford. And he so much wanted to show her his love that he sold his most precious possession, sacrificing it, his watch, that he might buy her these combs for her hair. And now she has cropped hair with this finest comb. And he has a watch chain with no watch. The writer closes the story with these words, which I'm just going to read to you. Here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that all who give gifts, these are the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts such as they, they are the wisest everywhere. They are the wisest. They are the magi. Because the point isn't the gift. It is the sacrifice. In a marriage, Happiness doesn't come when I say of my spouse, what can they give me in this marriage? Happiness comes when I say, what can I give for them? That's why the Church of England marriage vows say, with all my worldly gifts I thee endow, with my body I thee worship. Or where St. Paul wrote, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's why marriage properly lived is a pointer to the gospel, the place of sacrifice one for the other, not of satisfaction of one for the other, but of sacrifice in love. But what is true of marriage is true of all our Christian relationships. It's true of our living together. The Magi came, traveling the distance, the questions, the journey, and bringing their gifts. And as they came and they brought their sacrifice, they brought their worship from their heart, there they saw the greatest Christmas gift of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son the sacrifice that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God giving the greatest gift and giving it in sacrifice. The marvel that is received not by being like Herod and trying to hang on to what you've got or like the religious sense of trying to keep things going just a bit longer. But rather responding to the gospel in worship, because here we realize that God is for us, and God has sacrificed for us, and therefore we can give our all to Him. 
in response generously like the Magi. It's why as a church, we should have no reason for our fundraising campaigns or for worrying about stewardship because out of our worship comes our generosity. Out of our worship comes our sacrificial giving. Out of our worship comes our sacrificial living, our giving of time, our commitment to letting people know the gospel's good news, our commitment to sacrificing and serving our our neighborhood and the poorest in the name of the God who has given everything for us. It is because we worship that it transforms everything that we do. Because we have been forgiven that we forgive. Because we have been loved that we love. Because we have been filled with that which we did not deserve, that we overflow and give to others. In these difficult days, where nothing much makes sense and where so much of life that we long for has proven elusive, so many of the things that we thought would bring us joy and hope, maybe our Christmas even this year, has proven hollow and disappointing. The one thing that will not is to open our eyes in worship and realize what we have been given in Jesus Christ that transforms our heart and our attitude and our gratitude. This is the gospel. And it is good.